I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Kings 18 tonight. First Kings number 18. After all of that, it'd be a good time to go up on the mountain tonight. Go to Mount Carmel. First Kings 18, if you have a copy of the Scriptures. That's great. <clears throat> I tell you, I told the preacher, I said, I can't sing a lick, but your singing makes me want to jump up and join. <laughs> I was bragging on your music I have since I've been here, and I called home and bragging on it. And my wife wanted me to find out if you had any of this recorded. Try to bring it back. This is great. I tell you, the Lord's presence is so real. He's being exalted. He's being honored. I had a man of God to say to me over 30 years ago, he was a mentor to me. He knew men like A.W. Tozer. I was not ordained as a Baptist in my first uh, ordination, though they were godly and Bible people. Dr. Tozer was in that group. And this dear man took me, as he put it, under his wing and began to began personally to show interest in me, and I, I'm so grateful for it. But he said something among the things he said that stayed with me. He's the first person ever talked to me about morning watch, quiet time, spirit-filled life. But he said this. He said, the Holy Spirit is in this earth to do a number of things, and one of the things he's here primarily to do is to glorify Jesus Christ. He said, if that's your ambition, your desire, if you want to glorify Him, you'll sense the Holy Spirit helping you. I haven't forgotten that. And the music here is touched and anointed by the Spirit of God and it exalts our Lord. I'm grateful. There used to be a missionary come to our place and our choir, they would sing songs as you have tonight and God would put his hand on him and that dear missionary, he was way up in his 80s then. He'd come and give a word and I'd have him as often as he's there to say something to us. He was a very godly man and he'd say this when they'd sing like you did tonight. He'd say the choir is cooking on the front burner tonight. <laughs> you see, that's where the big burner is on the front, amen? And he'd say, you're on the front burner tonight. The book of Habakkuk is a verse for us this evening and then the book of 1 Kings 18. Habakkuk chapter 3. Little book of Habakkuk, that's page 1163 in my Bible, if that'll help you. <laughs> Could go to Matthew, turn left and go five books and you'll be there. Habakkuk chapter 3, 1 <clears throat> Kings chapter 18. I preached series when I was in the pastorate. Sometimes I'd take a book and spend some time with it. Often I'd take a subject and we'd come back to the subject week after week. 
I noticed in putting the catalog together, I have a brother that's uh, as a printer, has a print shop, Hertz Printing in Annapolis, and he's put some stuff in print a few years ago for us. When I left the pastorate, they, they had a tape catalog, <clears throat> and under the subject on the heading of prayer, there were 75 different messages on that subject that I'd shared with God's people in those five years. What we did, we'd just take prayers of the Bible. We'd look at them. Moses would lead us in prayer. That'd be the topic. Jabez would lead us in prayer. Abraham will lead us in prayer. At least once a week, I would come before God's people in sometimes two of those services. And we'd just let someone out of the Bible lead us in prayer. We'd try to learn from their prayer. We came to this prayer. It's a prayer. Verse 1 tells us of Habakkuk. Habakkuk led us in prayer. I'm not preaching that tonight. I just want to lift out an expression out of his prayer. Verse 2, he says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. I'm interested in that expression, revive thy work in the midst of the years. What do we understand when a man of God, a prophet of God, comes to God, and he asks God to, Revive his work. I think the next expression will give a little insight. Having asked God to revive his work in the midst of the years, he now says, in the midst of the years, make known. Would you let me give just a literal rendering of that expression and you can check me on it. I will not injure the the text. I will not injure the truth of it. You know what literally he is saying if he were here tonight and expressing himself tonight to us? He said something like this. Make yourself known. Reveal yourself. In the midst of the years, make known or more literally, make yourself known. Revival is God manifesting Himself. Revival is God revealing His presence. Old-timers would refer to revival as a spiritual awakening. Oftentimes it's referred to as a divine intervention where God comes. As the preacher talked about earlier, on that island when God showed up, when God revealed Himself, When God made himself known. And he's asking God to manifest his presence. Make himself known in, as he puts it, the mist of the years. Go to Mount Carmel with me where God manifests himself. Where God revealed himself in such an awesome way. Such a powerful way. Without me going in much detail to save a little time tonight, I'm aware that most of you are familiar with the story. Mount Carmel, Elijah is there. There's a showdown on the mountain. 
Has the challenge been put forth to the people of that day? In verse 21 of 1 Kings 18, Elijah came to the people and he said to them, How long halt you between two opinions? If the Lord be God, that is, if Jehovah is God, follow Him. He's saying commit to Him. Follow Him. But if Baal, if Baal is God, he said, then follow Him. Now note, and the people answered Him, not a word. They've all come to that uh, central area. And here's this unique man of God. Boldly comes before the people and he says to them, why do you, if you let me paraphrase it, why do you limp? Why do you halt? Why do you halt between these two ideas, these two patterns of thought, these two opinions? Jehovah's God, then sell out to Him. Commit to Him. If He's not, if Baal is God, then follow Him. Commit to Him. But the people answered Him. Not a word. That's verse 21. Now look at verse 39. Same scene. Same crowd. They're indecisive back in verse 21. They're not sure. There's no commitment at all. But now in verse 39 says, When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. They said, The Lord, not Baal, the Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. Now what has taken place between verse 21 and verse 39? Something has happened that's brought this crowd of people that back there they, there is no commitment, there is not a word. They're silent when they're challenged to follow God. But now they see something and their response is quickly as they fall on their faces, Jehovah, the Lord, is God. He's the God. Well, you students are aware of what has taken place. Look at verse 38. The challenge was put forth, the true and living God, let him reveal himself. Well, Elijah said, if this one that you've been following, if he's God, if he's alive, if he's the true God, surely he could make himself known and we'll just put him to a test. If he's God, let him reveal himself by fire and... Uh, if Jehovah, if the Lord is God, let him prove himself, reveal himself by fire. You know the story. He gave them the first opportunity to call on their God. They finally, in frustration and desperation, they began to torture themselves till the blood began to come out of them. Oh, Elijah, with the directions of God, has followed the orders of God that we'll look at in a moment. And the Scripture says in verse 38, Then, I've circled the word then, and I've written right up above it, When? When did the fire fall? 
Of course, it goes without saying, if it says, then the fire of the Lord fell, something has preceded. Something led up to it. This hinges on something. I mean, it's not just automatic. It's not arbitrary there. Something is linked to the presence of God revealed by the fire. It says, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust, licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, I don't wonder, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. They said, the Lord, He is the God. Now, what preceded the fire falling on Mount Carmel? What kind of place is it where God manifests His presence in such a way that people immediately recognize and they exclaim and respond, He's Lord. I want you to think with me about what took place on Mount Carmel before God manifest His fiery presence, if you please, before revival came, before God came in such an awesome way? Look at verse number 36. He's talking to God in that verse. It's a public prayer. He draws near and he begins to address God as Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel. He said, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I'm thy servant, now note this, and that I've done all of these things at thy word. Now what did he do? Whatever he did brought about the awareness, the presence, the fire of God's uh, presence And yet here's Elijah talking to God and he's saying to God, that which I have done, I have done it under your instruction and your command. You now let them know who you are. Let them know that I'm your obedient servant that's followed your instruction. And having done that, then the fire of God's presence came on the scene. I got a note from a preacher. He was kind to me. He was giving credit and glory to God, but he was grateful for the meeting that we was privileged to be with him in. And he said, Brother Hurt, when you challenged us that evening to follow those simple steps that Elijah took before the the presence of God came, he said, I don't know, didn't know then how many of our people accepted your challenge. He just says, I know I did. He said, I learned later that it was a nucleus, as he put it, of our people. Took that challenge personally. They set out lock, stock, and barrel is the word he used. He said to make that commitment real in their life. And he's writing about it, I expect, six months after the meeting. He said, I believe I can honestly say, Brother Hurt, God has given us a sense of His presence like we've never known. He'd been there over ten years. And he said, seems like every service, God just seems to be a little nearer than He was the last time. And he was saying, Brother Hurt, God began to reveal His presence when we began to take those steps that you suggested that brought about the awareness of God's presence on Mount Carmel. 
Well, what did God tell His prophet to do? He's telling God, I've, I've done all of these things at Your Word. There's at least five things that preceded the fire of God's presence. Just as simple as they can be. The first one, look at verse 30. We're talking about when can you expect the presence of God in revival power? Where does God's fire fall? What kind of place is it where God's presence rests in a wonderful way that changes lives? Mount Carmel made such a difference that day in those people. What happened there? But look what happened before the fire came. Verse 30, it starts here. Elijah said to all the people, come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. The first thing that I suggest tonight, the presence of God, the fire falls, there's, you can expect revival, you can expect the reality of His presence where the altar is being put back, where they repaired the altar. See, He's talking to God in a moment, we're going to conclude with that, but He's talking to God and He says, Lord, I did all of these things, I've done them all at Your bidding, at Your word. And the very first thing that he does when he calls this crowd of people around him, he repairs the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And it had been broken for a long time. It was in disrepair. It was out of service. It was out of use in the land of Israel. There was no central place of worship at this time. There was no altar where they met God. And so he takes this altar, and we're going to look at it in a little more detail in a minute, and he repairs the altar for a simple outline tonight. What kind of place is it that God is pleased to meet with His people, manifest His presence? Let me give you a word with each one of them so you can remember it easily tonight. I call it a place of sacrifice. Place of commitment. Place of surrender, if you please. A place of consecration. A place where there's an altar, an experience of an altar that this would correspond to in a person's life. Preacher mentioned a moment ago about that revival. I have that in print. I have a recording about it that stirs my heart when I listen to the revival under Campbell there. And read where he talked about it personally. I tell you, it'll move your soul if you've never read about it. But you see, revival doesn't start in a, a group of people. That's not its origin. It always starts with individuals. You read about it. We hear it when, when it breaks out. And we hear about the revival of Wales. And we hear about the revival in the islands there. And we hear about the revivals of other days. But we hear about them as, with a group of people. But if you trace the origin, usually you'll find one, two, or a few people. As I said last night, they become hungry. They become disturbed. They become broken over business as usual. And they begin to commit themselves to God and to each other and to seek the Lord. Now, I don't discourage anyone, but are you listening to me? Revivals are expensive. Revivals are costly. Revivals, real revivals. I'm talking about where God manifests Himself. I'm talking about where God moves in, where God changes lives and communities, and where God is glorified. I promise you there is someone has to have an altar experience in their life. There has to be that place of commitment, that place of consecration. That place of dedication. 
That place where someone just sells out, if, if you please, and just says, you be Lord. See, we want the blessings of God, but sometimes we don't want to commit ourselves to God. I talked to a man, he's with the Lord now, it's been a few years ago. In my opinion, he is one of the authorities on revival. He knows about what I'm trying to talk about tonight. He knew about it. And I said to him as he explained to me some areas where he'd been privileged personally to see God, as he put it, to intervene. He called it divine intervention. He called, he'd call it a spiritual awakening. And I said to him, Doctor, why aren't we seeing that now? As you've been telling me about, you was privileged to see it. And you know what he said to me? He said, most of us don't want it badly enough. Most of us say, oh, God send a revival, but if it don't come, most of us don't get desperate enough for God to meet with us. And then he said this, in our day, we have what he called, he said, it's a religion of convenience. You know, we want to serve God if it doesn't inconvenience me. But if it's going to interfere with anything that I want to do and some of my plans, I mean, we'll go to church a night or two if it don't, if it don't, inter, if it don't interfere with something I want to do or I've got planned to do. He said, Brother Hurd, I've never seen God break through to a people as half-hearted. I've never seen God come through to people who didn't want Him wholeheartedly and seek after Him until He came. I pondered that. Oh, we hear about revival. We nod in agreement. We even say amen. But you listen to me. Revivals are costly. The first message I ever heard 35 years ago from a man of God, I went to Dr. Ford Porter's church and heard that man of God. He was a revivalist in his own right. Talk about revival. And the title of his message was The High Cost of Revival out of the book of Nehemiah. What a stirring message. Do you have an altar experience? In your life, just ask yourself tonight. You say, Brother Hurt, what do you refer to? Well, the altar of the Old Testament is Calvary in the New. And our Lord would have that in mind when He'd talk about a cross. He'd talk about His own. If you're going to follow Me and be My disciple, don't confuse salvation with discipleship. They're not one and the same. You get saved by grace, by trusting Him and receiving the free gift. But He saved us to be committed and to be disciples and follow Him. And he says, unless you take up your cross, deny yourself, and, and Luke has him saying it daily, he said, unless you do that, you cannot be my disciple. Cross, what are we talking about? Do you, you, do you have a cross experience tonight in your life? Paul would talk to those Corinthians as a preacher last night, and Paul would say, life is working in you because of the ministry God was doing through him. But he said, death is in us. See, we can't minister life to people until death has been taking place in us, except a corn of wheat fall in the ground and die. It abides alone. It's costly to die. So let me throw you a curve. When you talk about a cross in the Bible days, it wasn't what you decorated your building with. I'm not opposed to that. We had a cross on the building where I was privileged to serve. Cross is not an ornament you wear on a chain around your neck. I'm not opposed to that. But that's not what he was talking about. Not some ornament. I mean, a cross was that what you gave up your rights. It's where you died. It's where you said no to sell. I mean, it'd be equivalent tonight of saying, taking up the electric chair, take up the gas chamber, take up the gallows and follow me. Cross, a dear lady said to me in a, in a meeting, she said, uh, 
I've asked every visiting preacher to come to pray for me. She said, uh, I'm going to ask you to pray for me. And I said, I'll be glad to. And then she proceeded to tell me she she suffered uh, with migraine headaches. And she said, sometimes it's almost unbearable. I'm told that, to my knowledge, I never had a migraine headache. But I am told, I pastored people that experienced that that, that affliction. And, 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 and believe me, it was almost unbearable. And, and I, she shared that with me. And then she said this, I've just about concluded that it's my cross, though. Listen. And the Lord checked me, and I said, well, then I ought not to pray. See, we're told to take up our cross willingly, freely, regularly. Don't try to get out among your cross. Don't ask somebody to pray for, for your cross to be removed. The Bible tells us if we're going to be the kind of Christian that pleases Him, we're to freely, personally, regularly take up the cross. She she was shocked. She said, oh, and I said to her, but... I don't think you're understanding. I'm no smart aleck. I'm not a know-it-all. But really, that wasn't her cross. That's affliction. That was a, I mean, that was a physical ailment. Cross is that symbol of reproach. Cross is that where you, where you died, where you gave up yourself. One woman stood up in a meeting where they had testimony meeting. She said, pray for my husband. He's my cross. <laughs> well, I, I knew him. I expect he was a little cross. Amen. <laughs> That's not her cross. She don't understand. Cross is that symbol of reproach. That's where you're willing to die to self and take a stand, as it were, and to suffer his reproach. And so tonight, are you willing to have a place of sacrifice? Are you willing to have the cross in your life? Are you willing to come to that place of commitment? Are you willing to come to that place where you, you just give up your rights, where you just die to self, and where you say to Him, Lord, You be Lord. Oh, if I understand anything about what I'm talking about tonight, the place where God reveals His presence, where God manifests His power, where God commits Himself, He never commits Himself to a people that's uncommitted to Him. I mean, to get Him to commit to us, there has to be a total commitment of us to Him. And, and just say, be Lord. And then He freely can give Himself to us. Mount Carmel was a place where there was consecration, where there was dedication, where there was surrender, where there was sacrifice, where He was building an altar. I was preaching like this some time ago in a place, and a man said to me after service, he said, there's a certain person, and he named him in our church, and he, he and I recognized who he was talking about. He said, oh, he, he, he meets that first condition you was talking about tonight. I said, really? He said, he, he sure does. He said, he wears a pin on his lapel that says Jesus is first in his life. I'm not against wearing a lapel, so don't read something, a pen on your lapel. Uh, I happen to have those pens myself, and I happen to appreciate the ministry that sent that out. So don't read something in that I'm, I'm not being negative. I feel, you know, I'm getting, I'm sensing something, amen. So I, I, I want you to turn me off. It's not my ministry. I go around, and I just happen to, I appreciate that ministry. We send students to that ministry, and, and so I thank God and pray for that dear man of God, and I visit there myself, so I'm not, I'm not negative about somebody. But are you listening? I have those pens. I just never did feel that a pen on my lapel says much about me. It takes more on lapel on you, a pen on the lapel to make Jesus first. I'm not telling it's wrong to do that. I'm just simply saying, you could wear a pin on both of them. 
still be full of self? Am I right? Now my glass is off. I can't see past the front row. Somebody say amen. Am I, are you still with me tonight? Well, but I hear saying anything, folks up here. I don't know if it's amen or me. Amen. <laughs> Uh, being ugly, you know, we went through an era where I travel all the time, you know, bumper stickers, and you see some interesting things on bumper stickers. <laughs> I tell you, you know, we went through an era there. There's one, you know, I tell you, saw quite regularly. Said, honk if you love Jesus. <laughs> People around tooting their horns. <laughs> you know, I, I never felt I needed that, but I saw one. If I got that old boy's attention and asked him where he got, I might have got me some of them. You know what he said? He said, tithe if you love Jesus. Anybody can honk. Amen. <laughs> I mean, see, his words can be just empty and vain and cheap. We can say things, as John said, if I'm saying something with my lips and doesn't reflect the reality of my heart. John's rather blunt in his, his book. He said, you lie and do not the truth. So if we're not careful, we can give lip service. See, God knows who we are. We can't impress Him. God knows whether there's any commitment in our life. God knows whether there's an altar in our life. God knows whether there's a cross in our life. God knows whether ego's been crucified or whether we're still strutting around and wanting to be seen and heard and wanting attention all the time. And until we come to the place, taking up a cross and just dying to self, there is no presence of God. Where did the fire of God's presence come? It came where there was an altar repaired place of sacrifice. Now, number two, look at verse 31. Elijah took 12 stones, not 11, not 13, 12. That's a significant number we'll understand here. He took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Twelve stones represents God's people as a whole. Represents them as a unit. Represents them being together. Where does God's presence fall? Where does the revival spirit work freely? Not only at a place of sacrifice, but I'm calling tonight a place of solidarity. Togetherness. Oneness. Unity. You want to find out the Something about the Holy Spirit. I was helped by someone years ago. Take the terms, the titles that represent who He is. He's called the Spirit of Supplication. He'll help you in your prayer life. He's called the Spirit of Grace. Everything that's ungracious about me will offend Him. Those names reflect and represent His nature, who He is, in order to cultivate His presence and walk with it. We've got to understand who He is. He's Holy Spirit. Everything unholy. He's a gracious Spirit. But He's also called the Spirit of unity. I tell you, if there's ill, ill will in my heart against members of the body, if there's unforgiveness in my spirit against someone, if I'm walking in, in broken fellowship with someone and I'm pretending to have His presence and the power of His presence to visit me, oh, I'm walking one way and wishing another. 
Listen. He took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes, plural. Not not just a section of the people of God. All of them are, are, are represented. Now I'm going to move to another. But are you listening to me? Now I'm not implying anything. So you listen to me. I do not sense any disunity in this place. The Spirit of God is free in here. He's working in here. But are you listening? I don't want to discourage anyone. But you know the enemy anywhere that God is at work, the enemy is going about to and fro and trying to find a foothold. And when he talks about the work of the devil in Ephesians 4, says give no place to the devil, means don't give him an operating place, don't let him have a foothold. I tell you, the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of unity, day of Pentecost when He visited the church and brought about the awareness of God's power, you know what it was said about that day? They were all together in one accord. There was unity there. They wasn't disarmed. They wasn't folks, you know, pulling a lot of different directions. They all was there in one mind and one accord, and they wanted the will of God and the glory of God. And God's Spirit brought about the awareness and the power of God's presence. Oh, when I was a pastor, some people used to accuse me, and they'd say, especially some of those that opposed me, they'd say, they'd call me Old Brother Hurt. <laughs> In fact, I wasn't even old enough to be called Old Brother Hurt in those days. <laughs> but uh, they'd say, Old oh, Brother Hurt, I mean, he, he gets bent out of shape over small things. I know it's the little foxes. Oh, I tell you, that thing that wants to just first starts with an irritation, irritability, hurt feelings, little gossip, passing along. If you're not careful, that thing has a way of festering, growing. Oh, I tell you, the Spirit of God who is a tender, blessed person and a Spirit of unity, if I have ill will and, and, and if I have some animosity and if I have some resentment in my heart towards you, I wound him and offend him. And if I offend him, I grieve him, then I'll quench him. And, and when the Spirit of God is quenched, there is no expression. He's just silent. You'll come to church and just go through a routine. And a lot of places go through little routines and forms, but there's no reality. And God said that's what will be happening in the last days, a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And it's because the Spirit of God. Somebody says people like that's not saved. Oh, you, you wouldn't have a right to say that. Oftentimes they're saved and they're God's people. But that one that brings reality, he's not free. He's not at work. We are to guard it with every fiber of our being. Guard, the Bible says, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. It's not automatic. You have to work at it. You have to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. It doesn't just happen. I mean, it's the opposite. We're prone to be otherwise. We're prone to be bent out of shape. We're prone to offend people. And that's why it says endeavor, work at it, put forth an effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Oh, a revival broke out. You've read about it, the Shantung Revival. I was in a church where they gave testimony. Dr. Culpepper was there, left his tape, left his book. Miss Smith was there. Some of you may have known that name, Miss Bertha Smith. They had them both there. And uh, they that's been some years ago now. They'd come from the field where they, the revival, if you've ever read anything about it, oh, multiplied hundreds if not thousands was swept in the kingdom when the revival took place. But I have the tape and I have it in print. 
from both of them, especially as they would call her Miss Bertha. Oh, what a forceful missionary that godly Baptist lady was. And how she could speak. She didn't call herself a preacher, but they would, they would invite her to speak to prayer groups. And I tell you, she gave her testimony and they recorded. And God hears me. I was listening to that going down the road, Pastor. And God so, I was overcome with His presence. I had to pull off the side of the road. Man, I, I needed some wipers to clear my glasses out. And she just told about how God visits. She put it, when God first visited that mission field. She said we were a group to be pitied. We had a dynamite message we talked about. Talked about a message that was so powerful and we was not making any inroad pagan religions all around us. All the people going, the devil? Here we were sitting around talking about such a powerful message and said we were to be pitied. And said we got broken over it. We began to, uh, she put it, collect ourselves and then pull ourselves together. And we began to cry out to God. Oh God, we've read about you written in the heavens and you've come down. And Lord, we need you. It's dark and it's difficult and we're helpless. And she said the day that he started that mighty visitation, she called it. We was in a prayer circle. She said, I was wont, that was her word, I was wont to put my hands up toward heaven in my time of prayer. And said, I was following the instruction where Paul says, lifting up clean, holy hands. And I want to lift my hands up. Hands reflect who we are, seeing what we do. And said, God put a restraint in my spirit and rebuke in my heart and said, put your hands down. They are not clean and holy and you know it. And don't you put those hands toward me and don't you say a word to me till you make your way over to that other young lady, that missionary that's coming in your presence and serving here and you apologize to her. And she said that was so difficult. I'm the senior. She's not been around long. Said she's very talented. She's very gifted. She's very useful. And said I'd become envious of her become jealous of her. When others would want to commend her and praise her, I'd find myself wanting to counter it some way and put her down. And here I am now wanting to put my hands up. And God said, you're wrong in your heart to her. This one right over here beside of you. You go get reconciled and then you can come talk to me. This godly woman said it was difficult before I uttered a sound to God. I made my way over to her and put my hand on her shoulder and I said to her, would you forgive me? I'm embarrassed and ashamed, but let me tell you, I've been envious and jealous of you. Could you find your heart to forgive me? And said that godly young missionary committed to Jesus Christ said to me, I forgive you. Said I went back and slipped my hands toward heaven. And when I said, Father, he said, I'm ready to listen now. <laughs> you ever read about that revival that started that day? Who is it maybe you are to make your way to tonight? I mean, a little envious, a little jealous maybe. It kind of bothers you to hear somebody commend them. Maybe they, you know, get some opportunities you don't. It's been bothering you a little. You say, well, I haven't said anything. I know, but that one I'm talking about, he knows about it. He lives in us. We harbor that kind of thing. I'm talking about solidarity. I'm talking about oneness. I'm talking about unity. 
I'm talking about where God's presence comes. And, and it came that day where the altar was repaired, where the place of sacrifice, it came where they used 12 stones. It came at a place of solidarity. Then with those stones, he built an altar. And then around the altar, look at verse 32. Scripture said he made a trench, a ditch, cut an opening about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. Great big opening around the altar. That, that stands, the first uh, truth tonight I suggest stands for sacrifice where commitment is being made. And then there's solidarity using 12 stones. And then there is separation. He digs out around that. And, and I won't go into any detail, but God's presence always comes where people is practicing biblical separation. Notice I say biblical. I don't go around hanging little Mickey Mouse rules, man-made rules on people. A lot of times we got our own little preferences and ideas, and God has nothing to do with that kind of stuff. And it puts people in bondage. That's legalism, and thank God He set us free from a bunch of old legal stuff. But I'm talking about biblical separation. I'm talking about what God says is wrong. We better call it wrong. It's a separation that's twofold, separated from something, and then there's a separation unto Him. And one without the other is no good. We try to separate from without separating unto Him. And so this, this suggests separation to me. And then I close by just mentioning the last two, and then you'll have this simple message. Where, where can you expect God's presence? What church does He come to? What heart does He come to? Individually? Tonight? When can you expect God to give you that awareness, that power, that wonderful liberty, that sense of His presence just real to you all the time? Would you have an altar in your life? Would you just give yourself to Him, surrender? Would you have solidarity, oneness with you? Would you ask God to help you not to have any ill will whatsoever toward any of His people? Would you have biblical separation in your life tonight? And then, after building this altar and digging this trench about it, keep in mind, he said to God, I, I did all of these things at your word. He did something so very, well, it's startling when you look at it. He's going to try to have some fire going. And he pours water on everything. Takes four barrels and just soaks it and goes back and gets four barrels again. The second time, soaks it again. And he goes back the third time in verse 34. They did it the second in verse 34. They, he said, do it the third time. That's 12 barrels of water. And they did it the third time. Verse 35, the water ran round about the altar and filled the trench also with water. What in the world is that supposed to say to us tonight? We're talking about the presence of God. Are you listening? Over 30 years ago, I was preaching along this line. Boy, and I was beating the pulpit and, and lifting my voice. And I said, you know, I've built some fires in my life. But I, I just simply say to you, I've never used water. Here old Elijah's trying to start a fire and he's using water. I've never heard God audibly. But I tell you, God put a restraint in my spirit. He just let me know. He just stopped me right there. And I knew God wanted to say something to me. And God seemed to say to me, oh, you got that wrong. Elijah didn't say he's going to start a fire. That's why he's using water. He wants everybody to know he has nothing to do with it. He said God will start the fire. So soak everything down. The old preacher said to me over 30 years ago, if God can start a fire, he can use wet wood just as well as dry. Amen. Any problem you think you've got tonight, don't pose a problem to him. But you see, what he wants people to know is there's no trickery, no chicanery. Everything's above board. There's no deceit going on, no hypocrisy. 
I don't care what you know in sleight of hand. If you dump 12 barrels of water on something, it'll be difficult to get a spark uh, and start a fire. <laughs> and so he just wants everybody to know what it's above board. There's no underhanded. There's, there's no sham. There's no hypocrisy. There's, it's what you see. That's what it is. It's reality. What kind of place does God place His fiery presence where there's sacrifice, where there's solidarity, where there is, where, where there is surrender, where there is sincerity, where people, where people are genuine? The hardest sermons our Lord ever preached wasn't to pour fallen people in the gutter of immorality. You know what the hardest sermons Jesus Christ ever preached? And I tell you, He'd look people in the white of the eye and, and He would just be so, He'd be bold about it, you know. He'd be talking to people that was playing religious games. Actors, if you please. Phonies. Hypocrites, he called them. Pretense. Oh, if I understand the Bible, I don't think there's any sin in the people of God that's more obnoxious to God than hypocrisy. Just putting on. Just pretending. God is real, of course. And the Spirit of God, He's called the Spirit of Reality. And everything that's unreal about me is offensive to Him. And He'll never give me His presence if I'm walking in an unreal way and a sham and trying to come across to people in a way that He knows that's not me and I'm not genuine. And here's a man of God. He, he soaks everything. Well, I said the fire of His presence came in a place of sacrifice, solidarity, place of separation, a place of sincerity, then you expect me to say this in close, in a place of supplication. He's praying. And what a prayer. Oh, you read that prayer. You feel his heart. He's not away a in a closet. He's, he's public. And they're listening to him. And you feel the intensity of his heart. And he's saying, oh my God. Oh God. Oh God. I run the risk of talking like a fool here for a moment. Listen to me carefully. I'm hesitant. I'm not going to go into any detail. We were talking today. Preacher and I and your pastor with us, we were talking about the uh, blessings of God. About revival blessings. I've never seen revival like he's reading about. But I've had the, I've had the privilege to see God move on the scene a few times, at least in a, in a limited small way, but it was obvious. God did it. Oh, I'm thinking of a place where I was privileged to serve. And I said to the preacher, when we talk about it, and I, and I, I will not talk, I will fear that I would, t I would touch the glory that belongs to him. I know who Wilbur Hurd is, so you need not remind me. If I sound like I'm tooting my horn, uh, I tell you, I have nothing to boast in but his grace and glory. But out of desperation, took a little handful of people, Put two churches together. I'd pastored one of those churches before. I've pastored, said the other day, I've pastored two churches and I've pastored them both twice. And so I was back the second time with a little handful of people and the work had, I mean, it suffered and the devil had split the church up and the, and the church was struggling and we, and it was in an inner city type area by now and there was no future there as far as building or anything. And another church had no people, but they had a pretty decent building. So we had a few people and no building. So we got together and put them together and we had two churches really under one, one roof. <laughs> and that can be a problem. <laughs> we had, we had two of everything. <laughs> 
two song leaders, two chairman of the deacons, two head of this and head of that, and whatever you know they had, there was two of everything. <laughs> we got together and they said, Pastor, you're the pastor. Whatever you say under God, we'll follow you. Well, said, well, a go word sometime can be, they can easy come, but they can disappear in a hurry too, the reality of it. And the honeymoon's over by now, and I tell you, it's like a powder carrier now. I could hear they let him lead the singing the last time. <laughs> I'd hear, does he think he's the only deacon here? They call, he called on him to pray the last meeting. He thinks she's the only soloist. She's, she's had two opportunities before I had one. You think that won't drive you to prayer, amen? <laughs> yeah, your mind won. And then we discovered that church was $100,000 in the red, and I didn't know it. All the records had been thrown away, and I don't reflect on the former pastor. He's, he's with the Lord now. Uh, I mean, I didn't envy him all the trouble he went through before he left over there. But there was no one there, and that place went away. But they owed that money. And they came, and they was locking the door. A sheriff brought them out there. I knew nothing about it. I finally convinced them I knew nothing about that. And so they gave us 30 days, 40 days from that day, 40 days to get that money. Well, I didn't have $40, much less to, you know, I had to have 40000 up to that, that 40 days. He said 40 days with 40000 and a little time to get the rest of it. And I didn't have $40. I started praying. They wouldn't, we wouldn't have all 50 people, both churches. I canceled everything I was doing outside because I knew I needed to be there day and night. We called a prayer meeting. That's what I'm leading up to. You couldn't believe how God moved in that place. You just couldn't believe. The night workers would come in the morning. I'd meet them over there. The day workers would come and meet in the afternoon. Sometimes it'd go from five or six till nearly midnight. I, I don't boast about this. They had a prophet's chamber, and I said to my wife, I just feel like God wants me to stay, and I took the clothes and stuff. And for two weeks, I didn't go home. I just wanted to stay there. I'd get a little rest to keep myself together, and then I'd try to lead our people. Crying to God. I said I'd run the risk talking like a fool tonight, and I know who I am. God began to come through in there. Oh, when 40 days was up, that building was full of people. Over 200 people was crowded in that we built on within the next two months. We raised that $100,000. One man came and said, when I was talking about 40, he said, here, that we'd cried and prayed for many days. It's one of our own. He said, here, God wants me to this is doing nothing but just being laid up here, put it to work. <laughs> I felt like saying, why'd you let us cry for a month? Amen. <laughs> I run the risk talking like a fool. That was in the first year. In the second year there, there was five and six hundred people coming around there. Couldn't get them in places. We built them another area over here. Went and bought some property over here. Next year there was eight, nine hundred. The next year a thousand. Some days eleven, twelve hundred people come in there. One man introduced me and said, Brother Hurt had that kind of ministry and didn't even have a visitation program. Well, I, I didn't review. I said, but brother, it'd be unfair to those people if you said they didn't visit. 
See, my understanding of visitation, biblical visitation is not, you know, demanding people to meet. Well, if you're having revival, your very life, your life attracts people. We baptize somebody every week. Talk like a fool. One weekend, we baptized 50, got saved. They all got saved that day. And I baptized almost all of them that night. God just came in there. You say, I'm not bragging on Wilbur Hurt. I'm just telling you this. Some people started praying. Started crying. Started waiting on God. And I tell you, God paid a visitation to that place. It still works. It really does. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I went a little long, so bear with me. Pastor will be here in a minute. My part will be over after just, just a brief prayer. I hope I haven't come across an arrogant, cocky, sort of self, you know, uh, pushing myself forward. I, I don't mean to do that. I know who I am. I said to God this afternoon with that on my heart again, I relived a few of those days. I couldn't even start to tell about it. God's awareness would come. A lot of times it, in Sunday evenings, 10, 11 o'clock at night, there'd be people in the auditoriums. They wouldn't want to leave. You couldn't get them to leave. Doors just stayed open around there. People we'd never heard of come in there and get saved. People winning people that got all in that community. That was God at work. Not because of Wilbur Hurt, because some people met some principles. You say tonight, I, I want God to start meeting with me individually. That's how it starts. I want God to give me an awareness of His presence, the power of His presence. You may want to just come and talk to Him. Don't wait on someone else. I'm going to pray and the pastor's here. We'll have a verse of an appropriate song or however the pastor leads and then our part we're gone tonight. Thank you for your being patient. I'll preach a little longer than usual. I'm apologizing. God want me to do it tonight. So you just... Would you just ask him tonight? See, he's already said it's 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 not something that comes easy. It's not without effort. It's something we'll have to discipline ourselves to say, Lord, I want this above my own self convenience and self ease. I want to see you come through, and I tell you, it's worth it when God comes. See, evangelism is not revival. Evangelism follows revival. When revival happens, souls really start getting saved. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray you'd make it easy for us to respond. Amen. Stand with us, please, as we stand together. The pastor's here.